Welcome to the Daily Theology Podcast, episode number three. I am your host, Stephen Oki. Today's special episode of the podcast features podcast producer Mike Avery's conversation with Joshua Coleman. Joshua is a teacher at St. Michael's Catholic Academy in Austin, Texas, where Mike previously taught, and where Joshua was Mike's boss. In today's episode, they talk about Joshua's experience with Eastern Catholicism, how he survived his dissertation, and the relationship between religion and football in the South. I hope you enjoy this episode, and please let us know what you think in the comments on iTunes or on the blog, and thank you so much for listening. All right, welcome to another Daily Theology Podcast. Uh, this is my last day in Austin, Texas, and I'm here today with my old boss, Dr. Joshua Coleman, head of the humanities and theology teacher for seniors at St. Michael's Catholic Academy. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Josh. Oh, it's good to be here. Thanks. Just one question I've been asking a lot of people lately on the podcast is, do you actually listen to any podcast? <laughs> I have from time to time, usually when I'm tipped off by someone, hey, you should listen to this a little bit of a Luddite in some ways. <laughs> Anything in particular that you maybe listen to on a regular basis? Um, not terribly regularly. Recently listened to an interesting podcast by an Eastern Catholic priest trying to describe the relationship between Eastern Catholicism and Western Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, but that's the only one I've heard in a long time. Wow. <laughs> Which, what, what, what's the name of that one? I'll have to dig that up for you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> No worries. There's a ton of them out there. So one of the things that we like to ask, and we're really, really focused on at Daily Theology, is what was the path that led you to do theology, to teach it, to research it? What, what was that one moment for you? I think with me, it wasn't as much a one moment. It was a gradual accumulation. I went to a Jesuit college. I was an English major. But you have two years of philosophy and two years of theology at a Jesuit college. So I was glad they encouraged you to major in something else. And that's what got me turned on to the relationship between disciplines. And I, I liked theology, but I liked how it dovetailed with other disciplines. And so I went into grad work in, in, in an interdisciplinary program. And so what I teach, while I teach in the theology department, what I teach is really, I teach inter philosophy and world religions. So, and I get to use novels. And so I'm still, I'm still sort of uh, between disciplines in, in a lot of ways. But it it's all relates to theology, but I always liked how it interconnected with philosophy and literature. Did you Growing up, did you have anything in particular that brought you to theology, or was this a, just strictly a college um, exercise? That's an interesting question. I mean, I think growing up in Alabama, you know, the, the theology that dominates Alabama is not Catholic, to put it mildly. And, right. And so or traditional in, in that sense. And so I, I kind of got turned off by, by religion in high school, actually. And gradually over time, I became more and more interested between between going to the Jesuit college and, and spending a lot of time at national parks where I worked in, in college. And my relationship to nature had a lot to do with my desire to explore more theologically and philosophically, I think. When you said you were turned off in high school, what do you, what do you mean by that? I, I mean... In Alabama, I just I just heard sort of the what I now come to understand the the sort of basic believe X Y and Z you get to go to heaven you believe that you don't uh, Jesus died for your sins and you don't really have to do much of anything and very much a an exchange theology Jesus paid a price 
very, very capitalist <laughs> in a sense. Uh, did you grow up Catholic? I did. I grew up Catholic in a uh, very Episcopal culture, actually. I was uh, going to private schools with predominantly Episcopals. But outside of that, outside of my area, was, was really Bible Belt Baptist Protestantism. Do you feel like your upbringing brought you to study theology at all? Not directly. Um, I mean, I think indirectly, this desire to find meaning beyond what I thought was a lack of, of, of meaning, perhaps. And, and, and um, I mean, I grew up playing tennis at country clubs and things. And, and, uh, <laughs> right. and so it's I like, know the feeling. Where, where Jesus couldn't have been a member because he was Jewish. <laughs> and, and so there was, so indirectly, I wanted to find some deeper meaning, I think. So yes and no, perhaps. So you chose a Jesuit school in Spring Hill. Why Spring Hill and not some other schools that you probably apply to? Well, I'd, I'd had some health concerns at the end of high school, and, and I didn't want to go too far away from, from home. Spring Hill offered me a tennis scholarship, and I knew I could play two sports at a small college. I could play tennis and soccer. and So it seemed like a good fit, and, and it gave me a chance to explore theology in an interdisciplinary setting, and I wanted to know what the Jesuits were about and so yeah, it was it was a good fit for me at the time. Um, had I had it to go over, I might consider somewhere like Regis. It was a little closer to the mountains. But Denver, Regis and Denver. Yeah, okay. it's a lot. It's basically Spring Hill, but with the mountains. <laughs> <laughs> so nature, mountains. I'm starting yeah. to understand you more. Yeah. In in college, what was one professor that really motivated you, inspired you, really captivated like everything that kind of brought you to do more in in graduate to graduate school. That's a good question. I think my biggest influences in college were, were the English department. I had good theology teachers, but but the English department captured. They really channeled Southern literature, hmm. uh, and Doctor John Hafner, Doctor Michael Kaffer, they Hafner could channel Faulkner in a way that was that just made it alive. We were in that Delta region where so much great literature was spawned, and. And they they really captured that and made it alive. And there was so much rich theology in the literature that I noticed because I was taking theology in a, in a, in a sense, and and it helped me a lot to see to see how it dovetailed. Do you have one text in particular from college that you remember studying? Oh, from college, that's a good question. Just off the top of my head, Faulkner's short story "The Bear" uh, hits me. I remember Thomas Merton talking about this story it was kind of an analogy of, of the mystical path in the sense that at some point the, the character says that he's aware, he, he doesn't see the bear, but he's aware that the bear sees him. And, and I thought that that was a really interesting hmm. analogy of the mystical path that you don't necessarily see God directly, but you, you, you become aware that God sees you. Wow. Um, and that was really moving, I think. Great. Did you go to graduate school at the university of Denver right after? No, I um, went and worked in the Jesuit Volunteer Corps for a year. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And worked at a homeless shelter in Tacoma, Washington. Whoa. So and a year of service right after. Yeah. And it was, that was life-changing for sure. I, I've met people doing the most radical stuff. People at the Catholic Worker. I learned all about, you know, Jesuit priests protesting at Fort Benning, Georgia, and, and School of the Americas. And, and stuff that just opened my eyes to so much. And, and people that were so committed to the poorest of the poor. And, uh... Yeah, I was really glad to have that experience before going back to theology. Yeah, it, it was an it was just met some amazing folks there. And you just did it for one year. I just did it for one year, 
then I went back down south to the Gulf Coast and uh, worked at St. Stanislaus Boarding School in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi. And I'd gone to boarding school and kind of wanted to work at one. And it was a great experience. The brothers, brothers of the Sacred Heart, they, uh, they take a lot of uh, difficult cases from the New Orleans area. But they, it's also a very good school. But they, they work wonders with those kids. While we're talking about your year of service, especially with the Jesuit Volunteer Corps, what are what's some advice that you would give to someone who is maybe applying or is thinking about doing volunteering work? I come back to Thomas Merton again because I remember reading a letter. Tom, there's some letter he wrote to a social activist, and I remember uh, reading it and it helping me in the middle of that year. If you get caught up in results, you know you've got people on the streets who are addicted to various things or in a life that's tough to get out of. And if you're only caught up in, well, how many jobs did I help people find or how many people did I help get clean or you're going to get burnt out. And, and while you hope those things happen, you've got to focus on the relationships. And when those things don't happen, it breaks your heart, but you still have that relationship and you know that, that God can get into that relationship. And, and so you focus on the relationships and you hope tangible change occurs, but it's it's a slow process. Yeah, that's great. Does you feel that one year with the Jesuit Volunteer Corps had really affected the rest of your life or how you see theology, how you write it? I, I do. I, I think uh, when I went back to graduate school, um, it's one of the reasons uh, I got into uh, Gutierrez and graduate school and the theology of liberation had a huge impact on me. And it just it brought back so much of my time in the, in the JVC and made it that time in the JVC just made it real for me. I think I made, made that book makes, I think deeper sense to me. Great. So the university of Denver, I believe is a public school or is it, it's private. It's not, it's not associated. I think at one point it was, it may have been Methodist, but it's not associated anymore. There's a Methodist school of theology next door. I love school of theology, but, but DU is, is a private uh, secular institution. Okay. So why do you and not like, uh, uh, Notre Dame, BC, or a typical Catholic Jesuit school, although Notre Dame is Holy Cross, um, but just one of the uh, the Catholic schools that many people go to. Why Denver? I think I wanted to see a different perspective on and and just go to a non-Catholic school, and and but also I knew that DU and Iliff next door had a, had really good interdisciplinary stuff going on. I liked the philosophy department at DU. Ironically, even though I went in to get a different outside perspective. The the chair of the philosophy department taught me more theology than anybody else I've ever met probably. And it, I didn't see that coming. So it, it, a lot of it, I didn't know how it would work out, but uh, I, I just wanted to get a non-Catholic perspective for a while. And it, it worked out beautifully. What do you think about inter- inter- interdisciplinary work in terms of why, why does it matter? Why, why do interdisciplinary work rather than, strictly going to a Catholic theology department, what, what, what gravitated you to that in such a way? And I think you can do it in a Catholic theology department okay. as well. I mean, I think it's, I'm sure there are situations and I may have not explored that enough, but I think just the interdisciplinary nature of theology is really important. I think because the imagination is so critical. I mean, whether it's Ignatius of Loyola or, or, or others, that the role of the imagination is so critical. And so if we, we, we can say that, but then when we see it in a narrative like Flannery O'Connor, uh, or if we see it in, in, in other narratives, it can come alive in a way that's very powerful. 
and and focus us or, or force us to reflect more perhaps and, and i just think these divisions between disciplines are these strict divisions are fairly recent in history and hmm. and i and i think you know back in even in antiquity there was more of a holistic approach even in the, between the sciences and humanities and, than we have now right <clears throat> almost in a way like theology is the queen of the sciences where you don't just stick to that one but you kind of bring everything together for your so moving really fast to your dissertation which i would oh. i bet you love talking about <laughs> so i just spent so much time on it <laughs> give us a little, little little brief synopsis of it of what you wrote i was trying to look at liberation theology or, or i was trying to look at gutierrez in particular i i don't claim to have a hold of the the whole corpus of liberation theology but and just tried to articulate a concept of personhood from the christian east that I thought would sort of maintain subjectivity amidst this desire to to challenge social structures. Oftentimes, when we when we come up with a system to challenge a social structure, we just replace it with another system that mm. that potentially does it may do better, but it still perhaps doesn't facilitate personhood in the same way. And so, looking at the Greek fathers of the church in the Eastern tradition, the way they articulated personhood, I thought could sort of protect subjectivity so that we wouldn't just replace one ideology with another. And it was sort of a personal thing because I was trying to connect my own interest in existentialism, which had been more of an internal search with my interest in social justice, which is of course kind of external in a lot of ways. So So that's always been an ongoing struggle for me to make those things cohere. So social justice, liberation theology, uh, existentialism, you have you have all these pockets of stuff kind of bringing it together, which it sounds like you've been trying to work through your entire, like from college to master's to, to PhD, kind of bringing these dis- different disciplines together overall. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's been my struggle, my desire. And, and one of the things, and I should have mentioned this before, one of the things I think that makes interdisciplinary study relevant or it did for me was that I, I came to understand that take for instance, the Hellenist philosophers, they, they really saw philosophy as a way of life. They created, they were very intellectual and, and created certain philosophical principles, but it was f- to facilitate a way of living. Hmm. And then as sometimes philosophy and theology can become a, a system that no longer relates to how we're living. Right. And then, so then when we're talking about God in this complete system, what does it refer to? And, and so it starts to make me question, are we, at what point are we starting to create idols? And, and, and so the, the Hellenists really helped me look at theology and, and try to be like, okay, how does, this co- how does this inform my experience and my path and not just some abstract system that's disconnected? Wow, yeah, so great. That's kind of making it practical, putting it yeah. like almost like in, in a way in reality, which is realistic theology in some sense. In terms of your dissertation from a practical level, which I, we like to ask these practical <laughs> questions away from just, Oh, let's talk about theology. But how did you get through your dissertation? What was some practical steps that motivated, like that got you through it in such a way? Cause it can be quite daunting. Yeah, it can be, it can be a bear. It can be a scary thing for me. It wasn't that bad. I mean, it could have, I could have probably gotten it done a little quicker, but, uh, <laughs> <Amen>. think, <laughs> but one of the good things about dissertation stage is that you're focusing on the books that you most care about and you're focusing on the project you most care about that you've created. And so I got to read, I got to constantly read the books I wanted, you know, and, right. um, 
So that was really fulfilling in, in, in that regard. It took some time. It took some... But did, it, yeah. did you write every day? Did you... Did, like, did running help? Or did you... Is there no. a certain... Like, what helped you get into the groove in such a way that you could probably offer someone who's maybe struggling with a dissertation right now that you found that this one thing or this one place probably brought you to get through it? That's a good question. I mean, given, given when I was trying to connect to my dissertation, I, I really tried to focus more in my own spiritual life because I was trying to connect sort of these internal and external things. But, and I don't know how some people do it. Some people had, you know, much more going on than me and were able to finish their dissertation. But yeah, I tried to just keep, you know, I had to keep exercising to keep my head clear. I had to keep just being disciplined, prayerful, and, and uh, I mean, the good news is it's, for me anyway, it, it was, reading and writing is kind of what I like to do anyway. Right. <laughs> so it's kind of, it, it, it wasn't too, too much of a bear. For some folks, I don't know how they do it. They, you know, with, with new babies and full-time jobs. I mean, I, I was able to teach tennis part-time. Right. And uh, fortunately, people like to pay, pay too much for tennis lessons. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I had a little more time than a lot of people have. Right. Uh, yeah. From what I've found from interviewing other people, the, the passion for what you're studying seems to be yeah. real crucial. So if you're not doing something you're absolutely passionate about, it can, that could be a huge uh, warning sign for a dissertation. Definitely. And, and so when I, was, when I was exploring liberation theology, I always had in the back of my mind my experience in the Jehovah's Volunteer Corps. And so it was personal, mm. and, it, and it kept the passion alive. When I was trying to connect it to uh, Eastern Christian theology— I always keep in mind my experience of the Eastern liturgy of John Chrysostom, which, which I love so much. So both those things were always operating in me, um, which kept it alive for me. Great. So I want to transition to your Eastern Catholic roots, although, I mean, th you can talk about clarifying what, what all that means. Did you do a postdoc with Father Andrew Lau, or is this something that was more uh, like beyond a postdoc? Can you explain? Like, I know you did the dissertation, then you you worked with him. Yeah, I worked with Father Louth uh, over in Durham, England. You know, he's an Orthodox priest uh, in, in patristics. He's, he's a patrician. And uh, it was, I had gotten some scholarship money for a year, technically to do another PhD, but it, all you had to do was write a, write a dissertation. Wow. So I thought, well, okay, if they can pay for it, I'll do it. <laughs> but they couldn't pay for it beyond about the first year, and I couldn't, right. I couldn't do it that quickly. But it was an incredible year. Uh, I got to work with someone who I really respect a lot as a theologian and as a man. And I was, I would walk through a 10th century cathedral every day and see s the relics of St. Bede and St. Cuthbert and light a candle to them every day. And it, it was it was a great time. But uh, unfortunately, I, I couldn't finish that. I still want to finish that project, but I couldn't finish it to finish that program. After you finish with Denver, why would you want to do another project in general? I'm I'm just curious. No, it's a good question. And looking back, I just thought, well, if it's paid for, I really wanted to explore the Church Fathers. I was especially I was becoming especially immersed in this in the rite of Saint John Chrysostom in the Eastern Byzantine liturgy, and 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 Father Louth was his his book, Discerning the Mystery. Mm -hmm. Uh, had such a huge impact on me and it was itself so interdisciplinary but still predominantly theology and uh the, the opportunity to work with him was really what it was about i thought 
I just thought that was a, an opportunity that, that I couldn't pass up. So for that year, what were you writing about in particular? Well, I, I was trying to look at the relationship to nature in the Eastern Fathers and how they relate that to liturgy and the whole the whole way of 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 seeing what the East calls the divine energies, how they continually enter enter the world, and particularly through Maximus the Confessor and his his work on the liturgy, the cosmic liturgy he calls it, and, and some other Eastern theologians. And again, go back. Nature's always been very important to me. The, my experience of God in nature, I feel that the the Byzantine East really focuses on. And unfortunately, recently, I think Bruce Foltz wrote the book I wanted to write. Oh, no. Oh. <laughs> no, no, no. But that's a normal it, feeling. It right? was actually, it's a wonderful book called The Noetics of Nature. I um, love that title, by every, the way. Everybody oh. should read. But hopefully I can use what he did and, and do something else. Absolutely. <laughs> Were you practicing Eastern Catholicism or Byzantine Catholic? I, I, the language is a little bit rough for me, but... Were you doing this before you, you, you did this one year of study or was like, where did this begin? It began in grad school. My best friend in PhD program uh, was Orthodox and uh, we, we were having conversations and, and he took me to the Byzantine liturgy and it didn't connect with me at first. It was over time. Uh, I spent some time at a Benedictine monastery that forced me into more contemplative spaces, of course, and something connected at some point. And I, and I don't know exactly when I was actually going to an, to an Orthodox church for a while in Santa Fe uh, bef- while I was writing dissertation. And uh, I just wanted to explore that the, the theology a bit more, and, and Father Louth was a big influence on me. So, Right. Yeah. Now you're, you're very much practicing as a Byzantine Catholic, is that correct? I am. I'm technically what's called Melkite. Okay. Uh, I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, and ironically there's a great Melkite church there and I didn't know about it <laughs> and uh, it's one of my favorite churches and we don't have a Byzantine Catholic church here in Austin we have a great priest at St. Basil's in Irving who comes down twice a month and so I help carry the incense for him during liturgy but uh, so hopefully at some point there'll be something more permanent established so explain your relationship between Roman Catholicism and uh, being a Melkite as well it seems like you have roots in both I mean teach at a Catholic school you practice liturgy, not just at this church. I've seen, I know, and you've, you've you've kind of been around many churches around in Austin, Texas. How do you see the relationship of the two? Yeah, that's a big question, and I, I'm going to try to be succinct. Appreciate that. Yeah, <laughs> you know, the Melkites, you know, through much through, gosh, till the I think the 18th century, were under an Orthodox patriarch, so they came into communion with Rome at that point. Now, many would say they were, many argue they were never out of communion with Rome, even though Constantinople had been. It's a messy history. It, it goes back to the schism and, and all of that. So the Melkites are in full communion with Rome at this point. In a sense, they have their own ecclesial structure. The only time there's been friction is is when when Melkite and, and Eastern Catholic priests came to America, and I believe in the 20s, and there, some were married. And this threw Western bishops for a loop, so they outlawed married Catholic priests in the U.S., even if they were Byzantine, although that was the practice in the East. Re- recently, Pope Francis, which I think is a great move, said said that's no longer the case, that the Byzantine uh, Byzantine priests can be married in the U.S., and that's, that's the Byzantine tradition. 
but that's that's a long story history. But uh, for personally, I, I, that, I was trying to get to that. How do you practice both? Where it seems it seems that you have a, a rich tradition of researching in in Catholic studies, but also now you're spiritually being fed at the uh, the, the Malachite Church. Can you explain the, like the relationship personally you do and, and how you not walk the line, I guess, but how do you embrace both? Yeah, yeah. I my what I my love about growing up Western Catholic it, it is really rooted in the social justice that's so profound, the social justice tradition there that I think could be strengthened in the, in the Byzantine East. But liturgically, it just there's something about that liturgy that touches a place so deep that keeps me going back. But but I still love the Mass. I still love you know, both are centered on the Eucharist. Both are focused on, on the sacraments. And there's some theological differences, differences of emphasis that uh, that come, the, the Byzantine East essentially comes from the Cappadocian Fathers. Mm-hmm. Or, or there's more of a line coming from the Cappadocian Fathers, St. Gregory of Nyssa, Gregory Nazianzus, and, and St. Basil. And, and the West has a little more influence from Augustine. Um, it, and right. so there's some different arcs that, would be a, its own podcast, but um. <laughs> this is fantastic. So it sounds like you you have kind of best of both worlds, where you you're well rounded in the sense that you have the church fathers, you have this patristic both study and uh, litur- liturgy that you've involved with, as well as you've studied things of liberation theology, social justice, and you've actually practiced it at JVC. So, I mean, hands off to you, like that's that's fantastic. I don't know if I know a lot of people that have done that over the course of their entire career, let alone their entire life. So there's a lot of different ways you've experienced God, which is... Oh, it's been very fortunate, and and it wasn't any kind of... Like, when I went to the JVC, didn't know what I wanted to do. It was sort of an accidental gift. Didn't know I would fall into loving Eastern Catholicism. I mean, a lot of it was was, was true grace and... and, uh, I don't. Uh, yeah. I don't even know someone who would go into JVC being like, "I have all my answers ready to go." Like, right, it's like right. I, I'm going to JVC because I don't know what I want to do, and I'm ready to yeah. keep my life up. Right? It's like, I, what's the their famous slogan? Oh, oh, ru- ruined for, for life. Ruined for life. Which is, <laughs> uh, in a way, that's a perfect way for, to think about service in some sense. Because once you see that, you're, you're changed forever. Point. So I want to switch gears now to uh, the teaching side. We're definitely very interested in. How does someone teach? What is their day by day? As a high school teacher, very different from college. What is your day to day like as a high school teacher? Well, I, I teach only seniors, and and it, again, I teach what are often college classes in world religion and intro philosophy. But the day to day is different. You know, there's there's pluses and minuses. I, I think one of the big pluses is I see the kids a lot more than you would in college in college classes. So I, I do I do form those relationships. And you, you, it's that grind that you, you, at some point you'll butt heads with a kid during the year, but then you work through it and, and, and you, 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 it's really very relationship oriented. And that's, you know, a big part of my theology to begin with, which in that part's great. You know, on the other hand, you have, you're, you're there a lot. I mean, you don't have as much sort of personal writing and reading time as you would as a college professor. That would be nice. I would love to, to to have that reading and writing time. Now they're swamped in other in different ways. I'm not saying one's easier than the other. Uh, it's just a different uh, dynamic. You're more with this. You're with the students more. I think. Right. Uh, an average per week. How many How many hours are you at the school? I have, you know, I've never really tallied it. Um, <laughs> but to ask you like a real like crazy question like that. at the school. I mean, I guess you're at the school, uh, maybe fifty. 
50? 50, yeah. And, but then I'm certainly doing grading and prep outside of school. So I, I've, I haven't thought about those numbers. In terms of just work-life balance and research, how do you, how do you balance trying to get some writing done if you can or you know having a social life? Because it seems like high school teachers, like many jobs, but even more so, just seem like if they're not teaching or they're not prepping or they're not grading – you know, they're sleeping. Like, yeah. like yeah. how do you, how do you balance the two? It's always a challenge. And, and when I first started and you probably felt, felt this way as well, you could always prep more. I mean, even now I could always prep more. Uh, and so I could spend 24 seven prepping. And at a certain point, you've just got to f- work on your own balance and, and make sure, you know, if I'm going to be a good presence for the kids, I've got to make sure I've got something else going on outside of school because oh. it, it it can really I think impact the way I'm a presence with the kid if I'm if I'm too overwhelmed with, with that and, and if I get some writing time I'm a better teacher and I've I've realized that even if, even if the writing has nothing to do with what I'm teaching so rest and not focusing strictly is actually something that may seem counterintuitive but like actually helps you it it does help me now I have to tell myself this too because I still fall back in old patterns but uh but yeah, exercise is essential. Prayer life is essential. Again, all those things I can let slide from time to time. But yeah, I think all that facilitates good good relationships. Great. One question, and it's an odd question I, I've been asking, is how do you communicate to adolescents that theology and religious studies is worth their time? Especially, and it seems like we're living in a, I wouldn't say a secular age, but it's a different time where they that we live in a global world where they they get so many different understandings of religion overall, especially in, in, a, in a secular media. So how do you, how do you communicate that in a classroom of teenagers? This is worth their time. That's a, that's a great question. And I think it's a really difficult one to answer. I'm lucky in the sense about, in the sense that I teach world religions and philosophy, in my opinion, because I'll have kids that they'll say they hate theology. They may not even know really what it is yet will be doing more religions or philosophy. And before they know it, they're doing theology and they're starting to see its importance. And so I do think the interdisciplinary nature of those classes helps kids realize its importance before they even know it. Hmm. There's there's sometimes there's almost a visceral, Oh, that's theology. I don't want to, I don't need it. I don't want it because they think they know what it is. And when you start to see how it relates to everything, English, history, literature, philosophy and then they start to realize there's some pretty interesting thinkers who were theologians and Hmm. it it almost just happens organically in an interdisciplinary setting but it's it's uh it's a challenge and those those like we you did in the 10th grade teaching and and other teachers i think that's a tougher challenge than what i'm doing frankly and a follow-up question what makes a good high school teacher i think it's one who who does his or her best to to always place the relationships first and realize where the kids are and push them from where they are. But there's a real, you have to intuit where they are. When I first came in, I had my system set up of where I, I wanted them to be. Right. <laughs> it didn't cohere to where they were. Absolutely. And rather than just beat my head against the wall, I needed to be like, where, how much can I, realistically push them Hmm. and so i have to intuit where they are without being too easy but without crushing them (laughs) and that and that's a real balancing act i experienced the same thing 
I would have one student who is very bright with a, one student that struggles mightily. How do you do that with a 25 students who have varying degrees of intelligence and ability all in one room in like, you know, the span of like 50 minutes. Like that's intuition is I guess an understatement there. That's, that's probably the toughest part of the job. I, I think in the wide range of capacities and interests and, uh, some days I feel like I hit it and some days I don't. Some days I I probably teach to the high upper end and some days I might teach a little bit to the lower end and 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 everywhere in between. But that's the that's the toughest part I think for me. Right. One of the lessons I learned as a high school teacher my first year was I never knew how boring I was until I started teaching. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know if I'm ready to listen to myself <laughs> either. But. I, I just remember I was like, oh, I have so many, so many great things to say and so many things. To, and like, this matters so much to me that right. I, when I go into the classroom my first week and they're, they're going to get it. Right. And little did I know when, when we mean like you got to meet them where they're at. It is not where you're at. And that's yes. And that's why when, they, when you start pontificating and they're just sleeping. On they're, they're, they're not just <laughs> high school students. They're high school students who 99 percent of whom are not going to teach theology. <laughs> and right. So, and so what's passionate to us, what, what, what strikes our passion, it, it's not going to hit them right away. <laughs> right. So you've taught at both, an, I would say, an inner city school uh, yeah. as well as a, um, a well-off sub, yeah. suburb school. Give us a little bit about your experiences at both and some of the challenges as well as plus minuses maybe of, the, of those experiences. Because I know a lot of people uh, will have a different experience of teaching high school in different areas and what, what kind of what kind of means to them so yeah so so i did i was campus minister at a Cristo ray catholic high school in, in birmingham alabama uh, holy family it's an all african-american high school and it's the only catholic high school in the country where 95 percent of the kids are not catholic uh, <laughs> all and, right yeah and and so it's just about serving serving the poor and they they really have an important mission and it it's it was an eye opener in a lot of ways. And going from that to St. Michael's where the kids are so well off, it, it was, you know, it, it could be a struggle given what, you know, and it's not the kid's fault that they take certain things for granted. They don't know any better. On the other hand, you know, I, and I'm thinking back to Holy Family when a lot of kids, you knew they didn't have breakfast or didn't have uh, anything decent for breakfast. And there, so many forces are driving their unconscious. And it's just, it's just, it's, it's, it's a huge struggle and, and the, the teachers there are so important in their lives. And, and, and just to one more thing, the Cristo Ray is it, the network is one where as a Jesuit network where kids would work one day at a company and the company would help pay for their schooling. And it's been very right. successful throughout the country. Cool. Any advice for maybe someone who just got a teaching job and it's their first year or someone who may be struggling to, find their voice in the classroom that you would like to offer is kind of like a final question before we move on. Uh, first year teaching. I don't know anyone who th thought first year teaching was easy, easy at any level. So don't be, first of all, don't be discouraged if it's, if it's tough. Cause it was so tough for me and you find it over time. Uh, you, you'll find your voice over time. You'll find what works and doesn't over time. And then you'll have to reevaluate again because that may not work for the next class. I may not work for the next year, but, but just, just to be patient with yourself because the responses you're getting may not have anything to do with how you're teaching. And so, uh, you just have to be patient with yourself and just know that first year is, is daunting. 
yeah. yeah. perseverance and just not it's not going to define who you are as a teacher that's yeah. just it's yeah. just all about finding your way yeah for sure and, and yeah so now uh, you do you are doing research on a couple of projects uh that we've discussed before i know you don't have a ton of time as a teacher although summers are you know you can do what, what you want in, in, in terms of research what are you writing t- right now i just recently wrote an article for the aar great on what i, I stole a little bit of the title from that Fultz book called the the noetics of poverty in the paintings of Vincent van Gogh. Oh, fantastic. So I try to just discuss the Maximus, the confessor talks about the transfiguration of Christ on Mount Tabor. And one of the things he says is anyway, that it's not that Christ suddenly lit up. It's that the people present, their perceptions changed and that uh-huh. they saw Christ as Christ always is great. And he, and he says that nature too we will see God in nature when our perception changes. And so, so it was a discussion of how Van Gogh described his style of painting and how it was meant to engage the viewer in a way that his or her perception needed to change to enter the painting in a sense. And, and there's, a kind of pr- there's a kind of impressionism in Eastern iconography as well hmm. where it's unrealistic so that the imagination doesn't rest, that it's 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 flat dimensions it's a little bit unrealistic so you have to sort of piece it together and unlike say the golden cap (laughs) that was complete unto itself and it's trying to get you into this it's trying to get the viewer into active actively participating in the viewed if that makes sense wow yeah no that's i mean all about understanding our change rather than where what is god showing to us which is exactly very different from a, like we're trying to always find proof or show me like where does God exist and in right. a sense of like our perception is maybe something to focus on a lot more. Yeah, yeah, and and this one Eastern monk Gregory Palamas spoke of the fall in the sense of our faculties being scattered, and so when we pray, our faculties come back together again, and so we piece ourselves together and then piece what we view together. Great. So we we've talked a little bit about the this project you are doing with football. Uh, in yeah. terms oh, yeah, of, a, yeah. of of like a, 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 a its own project in itself, I would love to hear how your progress of that is going, and it's just going a little bit about, a little bit about the project as well. Yeah, it's going slower than I'd like. I, I took a break from that to do the AAR paper, but uh, I'm trying to look at the changing uh, roles of uh, who was a leader, who we saw as leaders in football. When I was a kid, uh, I'm from Alabama, and of course Bear Bryant was the legend there, and Bryant had this Abraham like quality that that really I would argue sublimated a lot of religious passion. When when he died, <laughs> the hearse did three laps around the stadium in Tuscaloosa, wow. then drove to Birmingham and there were over there were over there were hundreds of thousands of people on the side of the road, by the way. Then it did three laps around Legion Field and then they buried him. I mean the the whole thing was there's no line between football and, and religion there. And so I was trying to look at the changing nature of our coaches from ones who held those sort of mysterious qualities, weren't necessarily even moral, to today, Absolutely. To today being more technocrats, being mm. more in the technological age, being more X's, X's and O's guys, usually people who fail in the pros come back to college, mm. and, and because they've had the pro experience, they're good college coaches, but it's not, it's not about relationships in the same way, I would argue, and that college football was was a myth-making, storytelling kind of culture when, uh-huh. when I was a kid. Right. And so you had these characters like Bear. You had these these larger-than-life figures. 
that captured something. So less of the antithesis of, uh, for all those, I mean, the, the antithesis of Bear would be Chip Kelly, who has a, a system at Oregon when he was, when he was coaching there. Now he's for the Philadelphia Eagles. And his, his, his whole motto, if, uh, if I can read it correctly, is it doesn't matter about relationships. It's all about the system that is in place. And it's all about how fast you can go and how you, it's, it's more strategy in X and O's than Bear Bryant. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's nothing wrong with, with Chip Kelly and his strategy. And if it's working, it's working. But us as fans, I think, have a different expectation than we used to. We, we used to love the story. We used to love the Joe Namus of the world, right? <laughs> Joe Namus would wear fur coats on the sidelines. He would uh, guarantee victory against, against teams that he shouldn't do that with. We, when people, if people do that now, we, we kind of freak out and we moralize against them and, when, so, yeah. So there's like a prophetic, like almost in a sense, uh, transcendence here. Is that what you're trying to tap into? I am trying to tap into a kind of holy foolishness uh, oh. that I think sparked our imaginations. Joe Namath sparked our imagination. Just one example. Again, doesn't mean he was, you know, necessarily, you know, a good boy. I mean, but, uh, but that's not what we cared about, you know. Right. And now we're we seem to care more about. We sort of want to reduce our heroes in a way. To, to fitting a category rather than sparking our imagination. Right. And it's not, I mean, the, if you read any scripture in general, you, not everyone was good, oh, quote unquote, yeah. you know. And the prophets, you know, every society thought they had a screw loose. And, right. And, and uh, but that, that's, yeah, what's, what sparked our imagination. Great. So, I, I mean, I'm, I'm super fascinated where you take that, and hopefully you can do more writing on that. That's good. As someone who teaches high school, as well as has taught college and has done his research in, in in your career right now, do you have any any future goals that you would like to do in, in general? Yeah, I mean, I'm really I, I want to get more things finished in my writing. Great, and, so writing and publish, and you know, if, if the right college opportunity worked out, I would consider it. Although I'm in a great place right now, I, I love where I live. I, I like I like what I'm teaching, but I think it's it's more my drive is really about writing and and trying to create more time to write and finish some projects there. Great. So we ask at Daily Theology a couple things. What are some major theological ecclesial figures that have really touched you the most, have really basically molded you into your, your spirituality, your, your, your academic writing? Just give us a couple of people that are, as well as maybe we'll get into text in a minute, but we'll focus on people right now. Well, I think the, peop- the person that, that impacted me the most uh, theologically, now I don't dare say it's impacted my writing because his writing was so amazing. But was Kierkegaard? It really uh, reading Kierkegaard in, in grad school was a revelation to me. And you want to talk about interdisciplinary? I mean, he was he was really interdisciplinary in his approach in a way that was almost impossible to put him in one category. Hmm. Um, but uh, and there 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 are passages in Kierkegaard that that it just brings so much passion in me. That, that blow me away sometimes. Right. Uh, any in particular text in general that you like to shout out in terms of if you had to choose a There's, Kierkegaard book, although uh, yeah, it's challenging. Tough. Yeah, it's it's tough for me. Well, I'll give two different, a few different kinds. Feel I'll, free. I'll re- we'll reduce be, it to three. We'll be charitable. <laughs> we'll be charitable. I mean, I'll reduce it to three. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, will two go together? The, the concept of anxiety, or, or originally the concept of dread, which is probably more proper, followed by the sickness unto death the latter of which he takes from a passage in the scripture that, that talks about Lazarus's death. And it says, though he later died, his sickness was no longer unto death. Mm. Um, and then of course, Kierkegaard 
his works of love is, is an amazing book too. Fantastic. Oh, great. All right. So <laughs> we could go on forever. And you're, sure. you're, you're, you have, you're in so many things. You, you're, you're part of a, of a monastery. You, you've, you've been to a lot of different places. I could, we could go on forever, but we're just going to end now with our less serious questions. Mm-hmm. Although I find yeah. them to be quite fun. So rapid fire. I mean, feel free like to answer just be, it. Just to be clear. I'm a, I'm an oblate at a monster. I'm not, me, right. me, okay, I go once a year. Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. No, like I. <laughs> no, no, it's all good. No, it's great. I always butcher things, man. This no, I know. Like, that sounds rough. And I'm an Auburn fan. I want to make that clear. <laughs> I talked about Bear Bryant. I want to make that clear. <laughs> right. Oh man, Sorry. had to had Sorry, to throw the to. shout I, out there. I had to. Favorite or least favorite liturgical song? You can choose one oh. or the other. <gasps> favorite or least favorite? I've gotten both answers. So okay, in the Byzantine East. There's a song called "The Angel Cried," and it's about the angel crying to Mary. It's beautiful. It's my it's my favorite liturgical song. Oh, great! I haven't even uh, heard it yet. It's amazing. I won't sing it though. Um, <laughs> my 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 least favorite. Wow, that's a tough one. We've we've got some uh, praise and worship songs at school that make me cringe. Uh, <laughs> you gotta give one. You I, have I'm to. I'm trying. Give one. To, oh, what's the name of that song? You you probably know the name. It's not "Our God Is an Awesome God," but that's kind of the path I'm taking. That's good. We can go with that. Yeah, uh, I always, I was, I don't know the names. It of reminds either. me of Monty Python when they're saying, "You are so big, you are so absolutely <laughs> huge." My, we're all impressed down here. I can tell you. Yeah. yeah anyway, I always, always had a rough time with "Yes, Lord, Yes," and they like that's a good one. And yeah. like you do like the hand signs, like yeah. you're, like you're like ADHD, like you can't yeah. stop yourself. Like yeah. I just, yeah. oh man. Current f- favorite television show. It's a great Ooh. time for TV, so Ooh. I really wanted to throw this in here. That's a tough one. What's appropriate on a podcast? <laughs> no, no I mean, I'm teasing. <laughs> um, I, I watch a lot of comedy because I, what I, what I read and write is so, it's so serious sometimes right. and I need a little, uh, a breather. And I mean, I, I gorge on the office sometimes or the Kroll show or, you know, oh, these, great. So it, comedy and like, and there's a, there's some new comedies. I mean, community is still doing their show. Community, or, yeah. Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, Tina Fey's oh, new yeah, show. Yeah, I just saw that one. That's a good one. Cool. Oh yeah. What profession would you have attempted or like to attempt if you didn't choose academia slash high school teaching, theology, et cetera? That's a good one. If I was, you know, a little more talented, it would have, <laughs> it would have been uh, professional basketball. But <laughs> <laughs> I was a little bit taller and a little bit faster. Yeah. A lot, because I couldn't even play college. So, no, but a, a realistic possibility would have been something like, environmental law oh say I, more I, about that i think i was always supposed to, my, from my family's background I'm, I'm supposed to be a lawyer we always we joked in theology in grad school what were you supposed to be <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, that's a great and, question and, uh, a friend of mine was like oh, i was supposed to go to med school i was supposed to do this i was supposed to be a lawyer but if i were a lawyer i'd like to think i would uh do something like environmental law and do something that that would be hopefully helpful. I mean, that fits in with your whole idea of nature and you mountain bike and you like to hike. And I mean, that makes total sense in in some ways. Mm -hmm. Fourth question. What team are you on team coffee or team tea? And you have to choose one. No, I'm coffee all the way. Oh, Um, I I tried to be tea for a while and just, I threw in the towel. (laughs) I still do. I don't like, I know in terms of the British, the, the tea is like just their thing. But Americans, yeah. we love coffee so much yeah. more. Yeah. I don't know what the, why that is so much. Besides the historical reasons, obviously. Final question. And we've talked a lot about your life. And I love that. To end with this question, what should the title of your biography be? Oh, gosh. 
<laughs> now that we've reflected on it. Wow. And, it, you know, people have, have, have answered all kinds of things. So there's no wrong answer here. <laughs> it, it, we're being fun and light, right? Right. I, he tried. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was very much, yeah. There was, <laughs> whether I succeeded or not, he tried. That or... Was, or <laughs> I, I think a great one would be whether or not I succeeded, you know, like yeah. that, that'd be a great one. That would, I think that's a yeah. good word, you know, at the end of the day, I, I like, yeah. who, who yeah. cares about like what, what yeah. at the end, what, did, what was a truly triumphant thing? It's just like, this is what happened, you know? Yeah. I just want to go out thinking I gave it. <laughs> great. No. Uh, fantastic. Well, it's been great. Fabulous time. Thanks I had a, a lot. Oh, it. It's been a, it's been a good one. And Good luck to the end of the year. I know it's a stressful end of the semester for high school uh, teachers. So, uh, (laughs) but summer is coming. It's exciting, uh, and it's been a great trip uh, in Austin. So, it's been great having you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Mike. The Daily Theology Podcast is produced bi-weekly by dailytheology.org. Daily Theology is a Catholic blog that pursues faith-seeking understanding in everyday life. You can find us online at dailytheology.org, on Facebook at Daily Theology, or on Twitter at Daily Theo.